Well, good morning and welcome to hopefully our last Sunday morning on Thursday morning. Now, this yes. is Sunday morning for you, but for Derek and I, it's Thursday morning. We're all messed up. We look forward to being able to teach on Sunday morning, and that's going to be the 23rd. And in honor of that, that I wore my camo patch this morning, and in case somebody wants to find me, they won't be able to find me. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Because last week we began a series of messages through the seven churches of Revelation. And this was inspiration delivered to John the Apostle when he was exiled on the island of Patmos in his latter years by the Roman government. And it was on that island, which was a prison island that the Romans used to exile some of their enemies, it was on that prison island that the Spirit of God spoke to John and told him to record everything that he was about to hear and he was about to see. And that became what we have in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is the vast majority of it is eschatological, in other words, looking toward the, the events of the second coming of Christ. But right in the beginning of this, after the initial in chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus in all of his resurrected glory and ascended glory, is this message to these seven churches. Jesus has some things that he wants to say to the churches of Asia Minor, and those words are recorded in chapters 2 and 3. And last week we looked at Jesus' message to the first church, which was the church in Ephesus. We know a great deal about that church. It's recorded chapter 17 and chapter 19 of the book of Acts. And Jesus had some very wonderful things to say to the church in Ephesus about the things that they were doing. But he did have this one thing, he said, but this one thing I have against you, you have left your first love. And so we talked about the fact that how easy it was for a church to get involved in doing all of the right things, but forgetting why they were doing them, that it was all about that first love for Jesus. So Jesus called them to return to their first love. This morning in chapter 2, we're picking up with verses 8 through 11, where Jesus speaks to the church in Smyrna. Now, there are seven churches. We titled the series of messages seven because there are seven churches and we have seven words that kind of encapsulate the message to each one of them. The first one, Ephesus, is return. The message to the church in Smyrna is remain. And you say, well, what, is, what does that mean? Remain what? Well, the message that Jesus is going to give them is that they are to remain faithful to Him. And as you think about it, that message really hasn't changed. It's been the message of Jesus from the very beginning. God's Word, all from the beginning to the end, calls those who are Christ's followers to faithfulness. Faithfulness to Him. Faithfulness to His Word. Faithfulness to truth. Faithfulness to one another in the body of Christ. And so the word to the church in Smyrna is, in the midst of what you are going to face and what you are facing, I want you to remain I want you to remain faithful. So he begins with a call to faithfulness. Now, as you, we're going to talk about the church, it'll become very obvious to you that this church faced some incredible challenges. They were in difficult times. They were in very tough times. And in verse 8 through 10, Jesus points out some of those challenges, some of those things that they were facing, and we're going to examine those this morning as we get a little bit further in. But he ends that discussion about the things that he knows that they are facing that are difficult, and he says in verse 10, but be faithful. 
So no matter what they're facing, no matter what we're facing, Jesus calls his people, he calls us individually and collectively as a church to remain faithful. In other words, when it gets tough, don't cut and run. Don't cop out. Don't turn away. Don't turn back. Don't turn away from him. Stand firm and remain faithful. And it's interesting, as I said a moment ago, that that message of faithfulness reverberates through all of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, faithfulness is so important that Galatians 5.22 tells us that it is one of the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. So there are a lot of people that talk about the Spirit-filled life. Well, one of the aspects of the Spirit-filled life is, is faithfulness because it is one of those things that the Scripture says that if we are living in the Spirit, if we are walking in the Spirit, that He will begin to produce in us and through us faithfulness, faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to truth, faithfulness to His Word, faithfulness to others, to one another. Faithfulness is a part of the Spirit-filled life. And therefore, if you are not living your life in faithfulness, then you are not living in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, before he makes that statement about be faithful, remain faithful, I said a moment ago, he points out some of the things that they are being challenged in, and there are three very specific areas that he initially, that he talks about that are presenting a challenge to their faithfulness. And faithfulness is not easy. That's why it's required that the Spirit of God produce it in us, because in our flesh we don't really have the capacity to produce this. Faithfulness is very difficult. But he calls us to faithfulness even in the midst of difficult situations. And he says, first of all, that you're to remain faithful in the midst of your trials. In verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation. So Jesus is acknowledging, even as he's calling them to be faithful, he's acknowledging that they are in the midst of tribulation. The Greek word that is used here is thalipsis, which means to be pressed or to be crushed. It's the very same Greek word that in ancient Greek literature was used for a, an ancient form of execution that really is kind of gruesome when you think about it. But sometimes what they would do is they would take a giant stone and they would roll it like several tons, roll it over the individual and press them flat. In fact, it's kind of like Wiley Coyote. I don't know if any of you remember the roadrunner Wiley Coyote. He was always getting crushed flat by a rock. That is actually based upon historical fact. It was a form of ancient of ancient uh, execution. And he uses that word here that they're being like rolled over by a stone. They are being pressed down and they are being crushed. They're in the midst of persecution. Now the city of Smyrna was a very, very important city in the ancient world. It no longer exists under its name, but it is now the modern day city uh, in Turkey that is, uh, what is it? Izmir. Is that how you say it? Ismir, Turkey. It's changed its name, but it's the same location in modern-day Turkey. In the ancient world, it's part of Asia Minor. Now it is a part of Turkey. And it was one of the jewels of the ancient world in the way the city was laid out. It was a, it was a genius expression of municipal planning. All of the streets in Smyrna were at 90-degree angles, and that made navigating through the city uh, very easy. Ancient Smyrna was designed and built, actually, by Alexander the Great. A lot of people don't know that. Alexander the Great actually designed and ordered the construction and the building of the ancient city of Smyrna. It was also the birthplace of Homer. Not Homer Simpson, 
for, <laughs> for you millennials, not Homer Simpson, but Homer, who was the author of the, the Iliad. Not only that, Smyrna had been declared a free city by the Roman Empire. And that was a high privilege to be declared that. What that meant was that that they could elect their own local governors. Typically, uh, Rome appointed governors over all the cities that were part of their empire, but if the city was so faithful to the emperor, then they would give them that freedom, and they could elect their own mayor and, and their local municipal leaders. And they did that, it did that because it was a center of emperor worship. And in the midst of all of this emperor worship, all of this stuff that was going on, Christians, as you can well imagine, would not engage in that. I mean, it was, it was a thing that set Smyrna apart from many of the ancient cities. So engaged were they with declaring the emperor of Rome as a god and worshiping him. And now you have Christians who have become Christ followers who uh, adhere to there is only one true and living God and you shall not make any graven images and you shall not worship any other gods, false gods. They would not do that. And because of that... Christians were considered to be insurrectionists. If they wouldn't bow down and worship the emperor, then they were seen as people that wanted to overthrow the Roman rule. And, and they were imprisoned, and they were tortured, and they were put to death. As a matter of fact, as Derek is going to mention in a moment, there was a famous pastor of this church that we know historically that was about 50 to 60 years after John is on the island of Patmos. It was toward the end of the first century when John was there. But in 155 A.D., a well-known pastor of Smyrna, of the church in Smyrna, by the name of Polycarp, was burned because he refused to worship the emperor. And so God's word teaches that we are to, that God allows trials in our life because this always comes up. Why would God allow this to be happening to the church in Smyrna? Why is it happening to the church in, in China? Why is it happening in oppressive places around the globe? And why perhaps will it someday even happen in America, why does God allow these trials to come into our lives? Because the scripture teaches us that it is out of our trials, when we persevere, when we remain faithful in trials, that the character of Christ is actually formed in us. Now there's an interesting play on words here in, uh, in uh, this letter to the church in Smyrna. Because Smyrna was known for a shrub that grew abundantly around in that area. And when that shrub was crushed, they would cut it and they would crush it, then that shrub would release a sap that was the aromatic kind of uh, perfume called myrrh. Myrrh was present at the very birth of Jesus and was present at the death of Jesus. And the vast majority of that would have been imported from the city of Smyrna. And the interesting thing about that is that it was only when that shrub went into thalipsis, in other words, when it was pressed, when it was crushed, that that aroma, that beautiful perfume-like aroma, was released. And that's the testimony of Scripture, that it is only when we are crushed that the real character of Jesus is formed in us and through us. And we've said it before, we don't grow on the mountaintop. We love the mountaintop. We thank God for the mountaintop, but we don't grow on the mountaintop. When we grow is when we face the difficulties of life and we press through them and we remain faithful. That's the testimony of the scripture in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. It says, Consider it all joy, 
Joy when you encounter trials. Joy? Yeah, not joy about the trials, but about what can come out of them because he says it is the testing of your faith that produces endurance. And let endurance have its full result that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But you see, that benefit can only come when we are being crushed, but then we prove to be faithful in the midst of the crushing. In other words, when we press through. And so Jesus says to them, I am aware of this crushing, but remain faithful. The second thing, he says that we are to remain faithful in things. In verse 9, it's interesting, he says, I also know your poverty. So for them, as is often true for God's people, with persecution comes poverty. And they were persecuted and they were impoverished because of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Now here is the, a little more background in, in, in Smyrna. Not only did they worship the emperor in Smyrna, but like the rest of the ancient world, they also worshipped all of the gods of Greco-Roman mythology. Now in Smyrna, there were these unions, they, were, we don't call, they didn't call them unions, but they called them guilds. But they were like modern day unions. And each one of those guilds was organized around two things. It was organized around a particular craft or a particular job, but also was organized around a particular god of Greco-Roman mythology. And that god became like a patron god of that particular guild. And so they all worshiped the emperor, but then each one of them of the guilds would choose one of these mythological gods as being their key god that they focused on in their guild and that they worshiped. And if you were going to be in a guild, then you had to worship that, the god of that guild. And if you were not in one of these guilds, then you were shut out from all of the jobs that really paid a living wage. And so for you, the only jobs that were left were the most menial of tasks that no one else really wanted to do and barely even paid enough to stay alive. Now, once again, we come back to this whole Christian commitment of faithfulness to worship only the one and the true living God. And, they, and so the Christians wouldn't worship the emperor and they wouldn't worship the, the patron gods of the various guilds. And so they were shut out from all of the guilds. And without that... They were relegated to poverty, to barely being able to even put enough food on the table to stay alive. But Jesus says, listen to this, Jesus says, not only do I know your persecution, oh, I know that, but I also know your poverty. And then in parentheses, it's, it's kind of one, of, it's, and it's actually in the Greek text, it, it says, but you're rich. In other words, he's saying, I acknowledge your poverty, but, I, but also I want to remind you that you're rich. Now that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Rich in what? Well, obviously they weren't rich in material things because they were impoverished. So he must mean they were rich in spiritual blessing. And why were they? Why were they so rich in spiritual blessing? Because of their faithfulness. Jesus called them to be faithful. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, here's one of those reminders in Scripture that there are two kinds of rich and there are two kinds of poor. There is material rich, material prosperity, and there is spiritual prosperity. There is material poverty, and there is spiritual poverty. And it is the kind of prosperity that you prioritize in your life that will determine 
your faithfulness to Christ or your lack of it. But I think by this time we all recognize that you can be poor and still be incredibly materialistic. In fact, some of the most materialistic people I've known in my life didn't have a whole lot of stuff. So you can be poor and still be materialistic. And you can be prosperous, obviously, and be very materialistic. Put it this way. Your pay does not determine if you are materialistic or not. You can be poor or prosperous and still be materialistic. It is not your pay that determines that. It is your priority that determines whether you are materialistic or not. Proverbs 13, 7 says, There is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing, and another who pretends to be poor but has great wealth. That would pretty much describe the Christians in, in Smyrna. They, they were poor, but they had great wealth in spiritual things. And, you know, I think this has been misunderstood quite often by people that think that you can't be spiritual if you are prosperous, or you can't be spiritual if you are wealthy. And the interesting thing about it is the Bible never equates poverty with piety. In other words, the Bible never equates, now you just have to be poor to be spiritual, never. It never says that. And that's because being materialistic isn't about what you have. It is about what has you. Whether you have little or whether you have much, you are still called to a priority of faithfulness to Christ, to His priority. And so the, the, the challenge of poverty or the temptation of poverty is to seek things for the meaning of life. When you're poor, it's, it's easy to go, you know, well, if I just had more stuff, then my life would have meaning. If I could just be rich, then my life would be full. That's the danger of poverty. But the danger of wealth is to say, if I just had a little more than I've got now, then my life would be full. See? So it's both in both places, in the place of poverty or the place of prosperity, they're just both looking at all I need is just a little more stuff and my life is going to be made full. By definition, both of those are materialistic because they're placing their hope in things. Jesus said, He who is faithful in a few things, poor, will be faithful in many things. But he who is faith, not faithful in a few things would not be faithful even if he had many things. If you don't have everything you think that you need to have in order for your life to be full, even if you had them, your life would not be full because your priority is in the wrong place. Let me give you three statements, and I'll, I won't develop them, but three statements that are kind of a test, I guess, of, of well, what is the priority? Well, your priority is out of whack when your priority is pursuing security in things rather than in Christ. Second, when your priority is seeking satisfaction in things rather than Christ. And when pursuing things distracts you from pursuing Christ. Somewhere along the line, if any of those things are true, what has happened is you have crossed over from making a living to living in order to make. That subtle shift in priority. Am I doing what I'm doing just to make a living and being faithful to Him, or am I doing what I'm doing because my life is all about making more, more, more? And in that pursuit, 
And in for that pursuit, there always comes a price. That's why Jesus is pointing this out, I think, to the church in Smyrna. Yes, you're persecuted. Yes, you are impoverished. But understand this, you are rich as you remain faithful. You see, that pursuit of anything but faithfulness to Christ always comes with a price. It's like the man that I heard about who was on a plane and next to him, sitting in the seat next to him, was a woman who had this huge diamond on her finger and he just couldn't keep from looking at it. And he eventually said, pardon me, ma'am, but I couldn't help noticing that beautiful diamond on your finger. And she said, well, thank you. It's the Clockman diamond. And he said, Clockman? Oh, really? Is it famous like the Hope Diamond? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. But it did come with a very high price. And he said, well, ma'am, if you don't mind my asking, what was that price? And she said, Mr. Clockman, it always comes with a price. Jesus calls us to be faithful. Faithful in persecution, faithful in trials, faithful in things. And Derek is going to come and talk about that one that we all love to hear is faithfulness in your speech. Ooh, faithful in your speech. Faithful in your speech. Notice that Jesus uses this term blasphemy. I know the blasphemy or the slander. It's the Greek word blasphemia. Uh, and and it's, it's translated in English in, in two different ways, either as blasphemy when it is directed towards God or slander if it is directed towards people. Now, contextually, we understand this is directed towards the people of God there in Smyrna. So it's probably better to render this as slander. And, and notice who is doing this. Who is the one doing the slandering? It says, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. Now, what does that mean? What is he talking about here? These are ethnic Jews in Smyrna who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah and are very hostile towards Christians in their day-to-day -day lives. They slander, they tear down, they seek to destroy the believers there in Smyrna. Christians endured a lot of slander in the ancient world, a lot. All kinds of rumors that were spread throughout Rome and Asia Minor by both Jews and Romans alike. There were some crazy things people thought about Christians. Number one, they were often thought to be cannibals. They were accused of cannibalism. Why? Because they practiced something called the Lord's Supper, where they ate the body and drank the blood of Jesus. Now, we understand what Jesus meant, not the literal body and not the literal blood. He, he is enacting the Passover meal that we are to, when we take that meal, remember through symbolism the broken body and shed blood of Jesus on the cross. But imagine this, as an outsider, this sounds very strange. These are people that are getting together and having some meal. I don't know, where they're eating the body and drinking the blood of some guy. Right? I mean, this, this is a very weird thing. So people began spreading rumors. Christians are cannibals. They, they, they celebrate cannibalism. There was also rumors of sensualism. They were accused of all kinds of hedonistic behavior. They, they participated in something called agape feast. Agape being the, uh, one of the Greek words that means love. So literally, they were having love festivals. 
They were being accused of having these massive orgies, these, these sexually immoral practices. Now, of course, in Rome, this wasn't something that they, they criticized that much. Rome was very hedonistic. But for these Jews, these pious Jews, they absolutely uh, were, were sickened by what they believed was going on. And then, of course, as James mentioned a moment ago, they were accused often of being insurrectionists. They rejected emperor worship, burning the incense in uh, worship towards Caesar, and, uh, and they were accused of hostility towards Rome as a result of it. And honestly, this goes all the way back to the Gospels. If you remember in the Gospels, as Jesus is being tried before his crucifixion, one of the things that the Jews bring to the table to the Roman government is that he is claiming to be the king of the Jews, and this is a theme that you see throughout John's gospel especially. They even put a sign over him, right, that says king of the Jews uh, to, to mock him. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but in a monarchy where the central power is held solely by the king, anyone who comes along and claims to also be a king stands as a threat to that kingdom. And so they were already, before Jesus had even been crucified, stirring up this insurrectionist language with Jesus himself. And that continued through the centuries in Rome, especially with believers, as they would not worship the Caesar. Why? Because we have our own king, right? There's a, this sort of political coup that they were worried about. Uh, and so there was a constant amount of slander towards those uh, who were seeking simply to honor Jesus. And, and James did mention this. I, I love this story uh, of Polycarp. Polycarp was a, as he mentioned, pastor in Smyrna who was uh, martyred for his faith. Uh, what's interesting about Polycarp is that Polycarp was discipled by John the Apostle, the very one writing this revelation of Jesus to John, right? He's the author here. And uh, he is the one, history tells us, that, that discipled Polycarp. Polycarp went on to disciple many other really important historical figures, Irenaeus of Lyons being one of the most uh, important ones. But both of them contributed greatly to the literature of the earliest church, that, that mid-second century time. Uh, and, and Polycarp wrote a, a good deal. We have a lot of, of his writings. We're not sure how old he was when he died. Uh, he wrote, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. We're not sure if he was 86 when he died or if he had been 86 years after his conversion. But he says, how then can I blaspheme my king and savior. How can I go and light incense to the emperor and bow to the emperor when my true king and savior has done me no wrong? And then he says this, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Woo, shots fired indeed. That is, uh, that is not... Uh, politically correct language, probably, for his time. History tells us, as people observed him being burned alive, that as the flames began to engulf him, he cried out, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. That even in death, even in the midst of literally being burned alive, he is faithful in his speech, he died speaking faithfully with gratitude for being allowed to suffer. Now, I, I, I want you to think about this. This is, this is uh, I thought about this week a lot, that, 
that whenever, I, whenever James and I preach or teach, we like to find correlations between the ancient historical context and then try to bring them into a modern application so that you can really connect with what was going on, right? It, it's, it's easy to read these things and hear kind of how things were done 2,000 years ago, but, but when you bring it into a modern context, then all of a sudden it becomes very real. And something occurred to me this week that honestly was pretty troubling, pretty unsettling. Um, I was thinking about this correlation between Christians being slandered by non-believers in the world then and how that correlates to today. And, and, and here's what I realized. There's not really one. And for really bad reason. Uh, the world rarely slanders us today. You may get called names here and there for being a Christian, but, but in terms of mass persecution, we are not really, at least in America, persecuted for our faith. Why? Because we're not even really on the radar anymore. Uh, we're seen as mostly politically conservative people. We have some ethical and moral positions that matter to us, but beyond that, we don't really buy into science um, as evidenced by a great number of practices. Uh, we're very narrow-minded, which, I mean, to some extent, we, we believe in a narrow faith, but uh, we're very judgmental, not good, particularly. Uh, there's, there's nothing really about us that stands to pose a threat to the world like the ancient Christians did. We're not making anyone nervous, in other words. No one's really worried about the church today and the world. Ancient Christians, on the other hand, they were always mixed up in everything. They outserved everyone. They outsacrificed everyone. They outdid everyone in kindness. They always showed up. We rarely show up in the way that the ancient Christians did. I love, I've, I've mentioned this before. There's a great historical document that we've uncovered from 360 AD by a Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate. Uh, he, he only served as emperor for a very short amount of time, but Julian the Apostate wrote a letter to the Galatian high priest, uh, and, and what he says in this letter is, is really fascinating, and it, and it paints a picture of how Christians were impacting the world during the fourth century. He says, I have ordered a large sum of grain and wine to be delivered to Galatia. And what he says is, once it gets there, I want it passed out, I want it distributed to all of the pagan priests that live there in Galatia, and then in turn, I want them to take this grain and wine and dole it out to the poor. Why? He says this, and I quote, for it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar because the impious Christians support our poor in addition to their own. In other words, we got to step it up. These Christians are making us look really bad. They're not only taking care of their poor, they're taking care of our poor because we're not taking care of them, and everyone's going to think they're a whole lot better than we are. And I love it. He calls them impious. Why does he call them impious? Because they rejected the, the Roman gods. They had one God that they served. They were seen as, as impious people, and yet they're the ones protecting and caring for and serving and sacrificing for not only their own people, but the very people who didn't even agree with them. Pagans, pagan poor people, Jewish poor people who had rejected the Messiah. And they're like, hey, come over here. We'll give you some of ours as well. And, and Julian's like, guys, we got to step it up. They're making us look bad. I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff. Dole it out. Be the hero of the people. Win their affections. They're winning here. They're winning the battle. These Christians were always in the mix in the ancient world. They had the notice of the world. They were seen as a, a very real threat. That's why they were persecuted so badly. They were trying to be shut down because they couldn't shut them up. And, and, and so they not only slandered them, but they threatened them with their lives. And, and so today, when we look at the correlating factors, how are we slandered? How are we shut down? 
Not much, because we don't really pose that much of a threat to begin with. But we do suffer slander, don't we? We don't suffer slander as much from the world, but sadly, it gets worse. We do suffer slander from within. You know, some of the most hurtful things, let's just be honest with you, some of the most hurtful things that, that have been said about me, that have gotten back to me, were said by people that I would still today say, love Jesus very much. And that, and that is the rough thing about slander, by the way, that, that it almost always gets back to the person that it's about. Just a side note, when you begin engaging in slander against someone else, you can be certain they will probably find out what was said and who it was said by. And it's especially disappointing when it comes from the mouths of Christians. I expect it from people who don't know me or from people who disagree vehemently with my, with my spiritual beliefs, with my moral and ethical positions. But when it comes from people within the church, people that I'm to be unified with, it becomes all the more disappointing and hurtful. What is slander? How do we define slander? I, I, James defines this this way a, a long time ago. I remember when I first started coming here, I've been hearing this, that slander is character assassination. Character assassination. Words that are spoken with the intent to harm someone's character, to injure, to defame, to tear down. Often slander is used to cover up your own failing, so you have some failing with some person, and, and rather than just repenting or apologizing, ask for forgiveness, you kind of double down and then go over here and talk to somebody else about their failings, to kind of try to cover up your own tracks, right? So it's used to cover your tracks, and it's awful, and it happens in the church, and it's hurtful. It's especially hurtful when it comes from believers, especially when it comes towards we who are in full-time ministry, you know, I'm friends with a lot of people, obviously not only on this staff, but, but other pastors and other churches, and, and we sacrifice a lot to do what we do. We, we don't have normal lives. We, we're not able to go on the normal vacations and, and do the normal things because our duty is tied here, and we do so because we believe that we've been called by God to do that. And, and so to do that, to sacrifice, to give time and energy and emotional output, emotional investment, spiritual investment into the people that God calls us to serve, and then turn around and, and hear some of the hurtful things by those very people, it just downright sucks, if I'm being honest. Like, it's a sucky thing. It's not, it's not fun. It, it's very hurtful. It's, it's very harmful. And it's not right. It's not what God desires. God tells us to expect to be slandered by non-believers, but by Christians, that's another form of low that God clearly, clearly warns against. Now, what do you do when you're slandered? That's the question, right? Because you will probably experience it at some point. What do you do? Here's what I do, and I don't do this perfectly, complete, uh, just warning up front, right? I, I don't do this perfectly, but here's what I try to do. Number one, I check my side of the street. I check my side of the street. When, when I hear somebody has slandered me, when they have brought some charge against my character, I like to ask the question, is there some merit to what has been said? Maybe it was said with, with ill motive. Maybe it was said out of anger. Maybe it was meant to tear me down. You know, maybe it was just a, a, an emotional output, an attack against me uh, that, that was, you know, caused by some underlying wound. But maybe there are some kernels of truth to it. 
And if there, if there are some kernels of truth to it, then, then I want to be in touch with that. I, I want to hear. And if it's not, then okay, and, I, and I'll, I'll move on. But, but I want to at least try and dissect what is being said about me so that maybe I can uncover some portion of it that might actually be truth, that I need to address, that I need to look in the mirror and go, you know what? Maybe they were a little off base. Maybe they said it in the wrong way. Maybe they sinned in slandering rather than coming to me saying this to another person. But, but at the end of the day, maybe there's some truth here that, that I need to address. I need to look in the mirror. So that's the first thing that I do. And, and by the way, that, that requires humility. If, if I'm operating out of pride, never going to happen. I'm going to become defensive. I'm not going to hear what it is they have to say. But if, if I'm operating out of humility, humility allows me to get past the attack and, and really dissect and discern, is what they said true to some extent? Number two, you refuse to slander back. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Probably one of the hardest things Jesus tells us to do, honestly. But this is what he demonstrated, right? This is what he demonstrated even on the cross as he was dying. What did he he cry out? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. He didn't slander back. He didn't spit back. He He didn't cast judgment upon them. He asked for them to be forgiven. You see, if someone notifies me of slander... I might give some context on why I acted the way I acted or a decision that I made. If someone is, 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 is calling into question or, or seeking to assassinate my character by questioning something that I've done, I may give some context to that person who's come to me. Uh, often slander is built on half-truths. And, and so sometimes I think it's helpful to give a little bit of context to fill in that other half of truth so that they understand, hey, this is, this is why this happened. But to slander the person back just creates more division. It just creates more enmity, which is, which is not doing anyone any favors. And, and, and by the way, again, much easier said than done, right? I realize that. And I don't always do this perfectly. When someone says something that is hurtful about you and you catch wind of it, the initial sort of reaction is, I want to get my pound of flesh, right? That's the flesh within us that rises up, that wants revenge. And God says, don't seek revenge. Vengeance is mine. Don't, don't do that. Don't repay evil with evil but overcome evil by doing good. That's what Paul says in Romans. And then third, I trust him who knows the truth. Jesus said, I know the slander that you're experiencing. He knows it. He understands it. He's experienced it. But he also knows the truth as well. He knows the actual truth regarding whatever it is that is being said. You know, I've heard James as well say this since I've been coming here, 2007. Uh, 13 years now, that time and truth walk hand in hand. Time and truth walk hand in hand. Truth, listen to me, truth is always revealed. It is always revealed. And, and my experience is that often in my life it is revealed. Often the things that, that are called into question, slanderous things that have been said about me, uh, I, I think m- most of them have have been able to sort of become unveiled, the truth has been able to come unveiled through just time. Rather than reacting, I continue to do what it is that I'm doing. I continue to act as faithfully as I can towards the Lord Jesus, and time allows for truth to sort of be revealed. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. There are times when when truth is revealed far after our lives are lived, but in the end, understand this, all truth will be revealed. Jesus says in Luke 12, 2, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Nothing. This is Jesus himself saying, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed 
It always comes out. It always comes out. Now, let's talk about one more aspect of this. What if I hear slander being uh, thrown against someone else? In other words, what if someone comes to me and slanders another person? I'm the audience, the ears, hearing it. Two things, two quick things you can remember when someone comes to slander someone else to you. Number one, disrupt. Disrupt. Don't even let them finish, right? If, if you hear the slander begin, then stop it. You can say, listen, I'm sorry, but I feel uncomfortable listening to you talk about this person in this manner. I think, I think you know, not many people are confrontational by nature, and so these kinds of things, I think, are really scary. They bring a lot of fear out, anxiety, like, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I want to be confrontational. You don't need to be confrontational. You can be very pastoral. You can be very concerned, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a put them in their place kind of scenario. You can simply say, look, I'm, I'm really concerned that, that maybe you need to go and talk to that person. You know, this is, what you're doing is, is not right. Slander is a sin, by the way, just to be clear, right? First Peter 2, 1, he says, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. This is the, the sticker. God says in Psalm 101, 5, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. <laughs> this, is, this is God's word, not mine, right? It's a serious offense. And so when someone comes to you to slander someone else, the first thing you remember is disrupt. Disrupt it. Stop it from happening. But secondly, direct. So we disrupt and we direct. We direct them to the person that they are slandering, right? So rather than listening to them talk about it, say something like, you know, it sounds like you really need to talk to that person. That you, you, you clearly are, are upset by this, and, and you're saying some pretty hurtful things. Rather than talking bad about them, why don't you, why don't you call them or, or, or set up a meeting to, to meet with them and, and have this discussion? Maybe there's a misunderstanding here. Maybe you've, maybe you've judged them based on, on, on half-truths or, or not the whole story. Uh, that's something that we, we often do, right? We, we reserve a whole opinion for a half-truth, and that never works out well. So you disrupt it and you direct them to the person that they have the problem with. And, and again, it doesn't have to be confrontational. It can be just filled with concern, very pastoral in heart. Jesus calls us to faithfulness. This is, this is the central crux of what he is saying to the church in Smyrna. We are called to be faithful, faithful in our trials and in persecution, faithful in our, in our day-to-day lives, in things, and faithful in our speech, even when someone is slandering us, we do not slander back. We do not revile back, but rather we continue to be faithful unto Jesus, even unto death. He's saying, remain faithful. Hang in there, no matter what happens. Remain faithful. We have the call to faithfulness, and then we'll wrap up quickly with this, the conditions of faithfulness. Verse 10 Jesus says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, uh, there's lots of symbolism in Revelation. Numbers often serve as uh, very symbolic uh, features in the book of Revelation, and ten is uh, one of those numbers. It's a lesser used number. Uh, Three, four, seven, and twelve are typically the ones that are used more than any, but ten is a number of significance in Revelation as well. It's a number that signifies completion completion, not perfection. Seven is perfection. It's the God number, but completion, that something has started and has reached its full end, that it is completed. In other words, what what Jesus is saying here is 
you're going to be thrown into prison for 10 days, okay, and you'll have tribulation during that, but that once that 10 days is over, once God's purposes are complete, then it won't continue after that. In other words, tribulation, difficulty, uh, trial is not going to be something that continues on and on and on without reason or without purpose. That it always, there is always a purpose for difficulty in life. And notice what he says. He says, be faithful unto death. Not until death, but be faithful unto death. That word there in the Greek, it's a word that means as far as or towards something. In other words, be faithful towards death. Be faithful as far as death. In other words, what he's saying is, you are to be faithful even if it costs you your life. Even if it costs everything, you remain faithful. Let me give you a truth regarding faithfulness. Faithfulness demands completion. Faithfulness demands completion. You cannot be faithful without faithfulness coming to completion. Otherwise, it's, you're not faithful anymore. You're unfaithful. I mean, think about this. If, if you are faithful to something nine out of ten times, are you, are you faithful? If you have, imagine if, if, if you are, I, I doubt that many of you as, as young teenagers or young adults, as you're dreaming about the person that God is going to put you with in your life, thought to yourself, I hope I find a, a godly man or woman who is mostly faithful to me. That, that's not anyone's hope. Now, life happens, life gets messy, we need grace, all that is, is, is true, but, but that's not what we're aiming for. If, if you buy a car and the guy's like, this is a great car, it starts two out of every three times. You, you would not probably want to buy that car, right? If you're hiring somebody and you call their references and they're like, oh, yeah, he or she is a fantastic employee. I would say at least four out of the five days a week he showed up. No, no one would think you're a faithful employee. No, you would not be dependable. You'd not be seen as dependable at all. That is not faithfulness. Faithfulness demands completion. You have to be faithful 10 out of 10 times in order for you to be seen as faithful. Otherwise, you're not faithful. There is no middle. There's no mostly faithful. It's either you are or you, you are not. And, and, and here's the reality. We like, as, as human beings, we like to decide when to be faithful, if we're just being honest. Like, that's the truth of, of, our, of our nature. When we're talking about faithfulness, I will be faithful to the things that are easy and convenient in my life. No question. Now, when it starts costing me a great deal, then we have some problems. But Jesus asks us, will you remain faithful? City on a hill, will you remain faithful? Will you remain faithful even in difficulty? Will you remain faithful in all of your dealings? Will you remain faithful even while other people are slandering you? Will you stay the course? Will you be faithful to Jesus? Jesus says, remain faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that crown. So let's be faithful. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this challenge yet again to be faithful unto you who has been faithful to us without fail. Help us, Lord, as we, as we struggle through life in difficulty, in trial, in tribulation, in our day-to-day -day dealings in life. 
Help us when others are, are seeking to destroy us, to tear us down, when, when they say hurtful things, injurious things towards us, when they slander us. Lord, help us remain faithful even in our speech that we would bless rather than curse and not revile back when we're reviled. Lord, we, we understand that this is hard. This is not easy. This is easier said than done. And it's not something that we can accomplish by our own power or might, but by your Spirit. And so we ask, God, for your Holy Spirit to strengthen us, strengthen us inwardly, empower us, do these things for us, because we, we know that we can't on our own. That we would be found faithful when you either return or call us home. And that we'd be given that crown of life that you promise. Lord, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So glad that you are here with us again. Uh, just want to reiterate to you regarding our live stream next Sunday at 1030 that um, we will be having a, a live audience of up to 100 people. Registration begins tomorrow on the Church Center app starting at noon. You can call prior to that uh, around 1030 if, if technology scares you. Now, listen, if you're somebody who I know is using the Church Center app and you're just trying to get signed up an hour and a half early, I'm going to make you wait till noon. But if you're somebody who, who, who seriously struggles with technology, then call before then. We look forward to seeing a, an actual congregation in here today or, or next week as well. Um, but I do want to say to you that if you are someone who still has deep concerns about your health, if you have underlying health issues and are just generally worried about being in, a, in an environment like this, then please do not feel judged. Do not feel less than. You will still have all of the access to the live stream. It will just be live rather than a recording, which is really great. And so uh, don't feel like a less than Christian. And, and please, people of God, hear me when I say this. Let's, let's try and honor everyone regardless of their decision. So if, if you are somebody that, that falls into either camp, then do not look harshly or judgmentally towards the other camp, but just celebrate the fact that God has given us the means to do both right now, and, and we'll be unified in that. We, we love you, and we cannot wait to see those of you who are going to be here. God bless you. We'll see you for real next week.